Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 28, The City on the Edge of Forever. Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm the host of Forever, Ken Ray. And I'm the host on the edge of Forever, John Champion. Each week, we dial back the Star Trek timeline, jump in where we may, take it apart for morals, messages, and meanings, and try not to kill our loved ones or destroy history as we know it in the process. Want to jump in with us? You can reach us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at the handle Mission Log Pod. You can even call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget to check out our very nice home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I got to say, I feel weird doing this episode now. Why right now? I feel weird doing it at all. Well, I feel weird doing it now because, I mean, the question is, do you want to start strong or do you want to end strong, right? (laughs) And here we are right in the middle uh, doing the episode of the original series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, and here's what's tough about it. I mean, uh, Star Trek is one of those rare shows. I apologize. Before you do anything else, we should actually say what it is. I know we've alluded to it. We assume that people know. We're doing City on the Edge of Forever today. Oh, that City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah. That episode of Star Trek. (laughs) The episode of Star Trek, right. This is not, this is not, Mary. No. (laughs) (laughs) This is not that the episode. This is the episode. Go ahead. You were saying I interrupted. I apologize. Uh, I I can tell you that I'm approaching this day with a a mix of uh, uh, great anticipation and dread uh, because Star Trek, as I was saying, is one of those rare shows that started off with a bang and got better and better very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, a lot of modern shows, one might even say Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, took a way to find its footing. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we are quickly approaching the end of the first season. And we've got the Hugo Award winning uh, uh, from 1968 uh, best dramatic presentation. And what I would say is probably just one of the best hours of science fiction ever made for TV. Wow. That's saying a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that I've missed. I will say, though, this... Um not to be all fantastic or Leonard Malton, uh, you know, while there's a lot that I've missed, this episode doesn't miss a lot. Um, There's, I mean, there, (laughs) you know, part of what we're charged with doing, and so, you know, I don't want anybody to get mad. Part of what we're charged with doing is is nitpicking a tiny bit. And so, you know, there are things that you can say in this episode, "Mm, I wish that wasn't. But, I mean, I'll go ahead and say right now, I mean, we let's go ahead and just spoil the whole thing. This episode <laughs> works. This episode works. This is yeah. just this is just an incredible episode, and we'll get into why we think so and, and what have you here in a bit. Well, hey, before we get into that, yes. may, I, uh, may I, with your permission, mm-hmm. derail us just a moment to give you some trivia? Dude, if you didn't, I would feel heartbroken. Okay. Well, as I mentioned... Uh, this episode was a winner in 1968 of the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. And, um, you know, the, the, there are pieces of trivia about this episode, but you really can't talk about it with talking about 
the one huge piece of trivia that is not trivial in the least, and that is the involvement of Harlan Ellison with this episode. So Harlan Ellison, great science fiction writer, uh, wrote the original draft of this script and wrote at least two more drafts. And famously, these were submitted to the production and rewritten, 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 to the extent that only two of Harlan's original lines actually remain intact in the <sighs> final version that aired. Oh, wow. Well, and you know what? Here's the thing. That may not be a totally uncommon thing in Hollywood, um, but Harlan Ellison is somebody who, shall we say, has a little bit of uh, a temper. He, okay. He's a man who holds a grudge. <laughs> okay? Um and he went very public about uh, his problems with the way that his script was handled on Star Trek. He even wrote a book called The City on the Edge of Forever in which he runs his original draft. And uh, he has commentary from some of the other cast members and writers from the show. And he basically vents about uh, how he was mistreated. Now, here's the thing, though. Um, hearing Harlan Ellison vent about anything is kind of entertainment in and of, in and of itself. Um, and I would also recommend checking out not only his book, but there was a documentary about Harlan that came out a few years ago called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. So if you just like to hear um, uh, somebody who very much not only enjoys venting, uh, but has a way with words <laughs> in which he vents, then I would suggest checking that out. Um, Hang on. Correct me if I'm wrong, too. But when we were younger, um, mm -hmm. wasn't there a book that was Harlan Ellison's original treatment of iRobot? <laughs> was there? I <laughs> uh, see. Now I wish I had looked this up beforehand. Maybe yeah, I'll, maybe I'll yeah. try to do that before, uh, before we hit the next segment. Okay. I want to yeah. say <laughs> that there was, a, that there was, and it was, it was like the way they were selling this book was here is the movie that will never be made or something like the greatest science fiction movie that will never be made because, uh. I don't know if it was, a, it was a rights issue or if it was an intricacies issue, but I, I, I've got it in my head that he and Isaac Asimov worked on a treatment for iRobot that was just it – was, it was too something. I mean it may be the same kind of thing that you have here. I mean it's one of the tragedies, right, of actually you know, yeah. <laughs> you want great writers to write for the mass market. But then when you look at doing it for the mass market, you're like, yeah, no, that's not – yeah, we're going to change that to – Okay. And by the end of yeah. it, you know, the biggest thing that you've got of Harlan Ellison is his name at the end of right. the episode. And yet, and yet, I mean, say that if you want to, this episode, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's exactly it. You know, there's so much that can be discussed here about what happened and, and how all that played out. A lot of credit has to be given to Gene Roddenberry and particularly to DC Dorothy Fontana uh, for developing this into what it became. Um, and I, arguably what it became is something better than its draft. Um, so it, it's very hard to lay too much fault with the production team at Star Trek who banged out one of the best episodes, the episode here. So um, like I said, I, I don't want to get too off in the trivia. I would encourage people to go check out uh, the book and to check out um, all the, the comments that have been made by Harlan Ellison and those involved uh, because it's fascinating stuff. And in fact, I have a little uh, I have a little gift for our listeners and particularly those listeners who have joined us on Facebook. Um, 
when this episode of Mission Log airs, I'm going to put up a memo on our Facebook page written by one of the uh, production staff at Star Trek, essentially analyzing and breaking down the problems with Harlan's second draft. And uh, it's incomplete. I think we're missing a page there, but this is direct from the Roddenberry archives. And it is fascinating and hilarious. So I can't wait for our listeners to be able to read that. Forgive me. I missed most of what you just said because I was looking up the thing that I was talking about. (laughs) Okay. I apologize. (laughs) But let me really quickly. um, I found it on Amazon. It's iRobot, the illustrated screenplay. Um, from the Library Journal, Ellison's script for iRobot, dubbed the greatest science fiction movie never made, oh, cool. uh, was actually written in the late 1970s but floundered because of supposed high production costs and other assorted difficulties, which are explained in the introduction. So yeah. interesting that that was, you know, kind of a thing that happened. That was his calling card. Yeah, right. I, got, I got a great idea that you'll never see. Yeah. But check this out. <laughs> Hey, before we uh, move along into the story, um, since you mentioned our old friend Miri. Mm hmm. Uh, did you recognize that back lot, by the way? Because it's the same place where they shot Miri and Return of the Archons. Uh, and that's Mayberry they, as well. They cleaned it up a bit. They well, did. From Miri, anyway. Not yeah. from Mayberry. <laughs> from Mayberry, actually, you know, it looked like it had seen better days because it was, you know. Right. Well, we're going to tell people in a minute when it was. But, yeah, Mayberry was a friendlier place. It's a timeless episode that is all about time. Let's listen as John recaps the city on the edge of forever. Prologue. The Enterprise is orbiting a planet which seems to be emanating some kind of time distortion. It's getting bumpy on board and Sulu's panel explodes. He's knocked back unconscious, but McCoy comes to the rescue with a tricky drug, Corgerzine. Sulu recovers nicely, but when we hit the next bit of turbulence, McCoy accidentally shoots himself up with all of the remaining drug and loses it pretty badly, turning into a sweaty, paranoid mess and muscling his way off the bridge. Act 1. McCoy makes his way to the transporter room where he overpowers a technician, steals a phaser, and beams himself down to the planet below. Now we need a new landing party to go after McCoy. Kirk, Spock, Scotty Uhura, and a couple of security guards follow. On the planet, McCoy is sneaking around while the others discover ancient ruins. One of those ruins introduces itself as the Guardian of Forever and starts displaying some old educational films that look like Earth's past. It is Earth's past. The Guardian can whisk anyone through its rocky opening into any time, any place. McCoy is found, and Spock renders him unconscious with a nerve pinch. The effect doesn't last long, though. McCoy leaps up and runs through the Guardian, ending up who knows where or when. In an instant, Uhura loses contact with the Enterprise, and the Guardian explains that's because history has changed. There is no more Enterprise. Act 2. Fortunately, Spock has been recording the Guardian with his tricorder, and he and Kirk decide to follow McCoy when the appropriate film loop starts playing again and Spock gives the word. It's the only way they can prevent McCoy from changing whatever he changes to alter history. If they are unsuccessful, the rest of the crew were instructed to pick a time and leap through and carry on with their lives. Finding themselves in New York in 1930, Kirk and Spock steal some clothes to try to fit in better. After a chase with the police, they wind up in the basement of a soup kitchen where they are found by Edith Keeler, who runs this mission. 
She's kind-hearted and offers these two interlopers who are down on their luck a job doing some cleaning. She even recommends a place where they can stay, the same building where she lives. Oh, and by the way, cue that dreamy music. Upstairs in the soup kitchen, Edith gives an inspirational speech to those who are partaking of her charity. She dreams big. Atomic energy, men on the moon and in the stars. It's all much too early in history for those things, but Kirk is more than a little intrigued. Saving some of their money, Kirk and Spock start purchasing primitive 1930s technology like radio tubes to help get the tricorder running in such a way to find out how and when McCoy will alter history. The problem is, all of this may lead back to Edith Keeler. Spock finds two pieces of history recorded from The Guardian. One in his obituary for Keeler in 1930, the other is a story about her meeting with FDR in 1936. One path is true, the other is not. There's a possibility that history is dependent on her death, and McCoy may be the key. Act 3. In another corner of the city, McCoy now appears. Kirk and Spock had arrived a few days before his leap, but they have no idea when or where he'll arrive. The Cordrazine is starting to wear off, and as McCoy passes out, one very unlucky vagrant picks up that stolen phaser from McCoy's belt and accidentally disintegrates himself. Kids, don't play with phasers. Spock and Kirk are still trying to put the pieces together, and Kirk admits that he doesn't know what to do. As luck would have it, the disheveled McCoy stumbles into Keeler's mission for a cup of coffee. He's a total mess still, but a little more subdued. Edith, being the softy she is, allows him to rest on a cot in the back room. Up in their room, Spock has cracked the change in history. Edith Keeler, by not dying in an accident in 1930, leads a pacifist movement that delays America's entry into World War II. With that reprieve, Germany develops an atomic bomb first and dominates the world. Finally, Kirk admits to Spock what's going on. He's fallen in love with Edith. Spock replies that Edith Keeler must die. Act 4. McCoy is resting well and seems to have shaken off his cordrazine overdose. Keeler is watching over him and even mentions that she has some friends who he should meet. Back at the apartment building, Kirk is leaving as Edith is coming home and he catches her when she almost falls down the stairs. Spock disapproves and he tries to reason with Kirk. If he follows his heart, then history may lose many more millions of people who are not supposed to die. Back at the mission, McCoy offers to do some work to repay Edith's kindness. She'll take him up on the offer later, but first her young man, Kirk, is taking her to a Clark Gable movie. McCoy knows what a movie is, but he has no idea who a Clark Gable is. Edith just finds that weird. Cut to the street a little while later, and Edith's telling Kirk about Clark Gable. Kirk has no idea what she's talking about either. She says, that's funny, you're just like that McCoy guy. Wait, McCoy? Kirk rushes across the street to the mission to find McCoy and tells Edith to stay put. There's a quick, cheerful reunion between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and Edith wants to see what all the hubbub is about. She starts across the street just as a truck is passing, and McCoy instinctively rushes to save her. Kirk throws himself in front of McCoy, thus allowing Edith to die, and the course of history is set right again. The three appear in front of the Guardian of Forever, apparently only gone for a split second for Scotty and the rest of the landing party. Uhura says that the Enterprise is back in orbit, and Kirk says, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah, that's a great yeah. episode. I gotta say, um, I'm a little bummed, not just because of the episode, but because I thought Edith Keeler Must Die would be an yeah. excellent name for my band. 
<laughs> yeah. And it turns out there's actually already a band called Edith oh. Killer Must Die. I know. So no. I was I was not alone in that thinking. Hey, uh, can I ask a hardware question? Yeah, go ahead. Is that Phaser 1 that McCoy is walking around with? Well, you know, you're right, Ken. That is Phaser number one, yeah. not to be confused with Phaser number two. <laughs> I know, which is weird yeah. because, you know, everybody on the Enterprise sports Phaser number two, but I guess he's a doctor, not an arms dealer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he needs a smaller device that when set to overload will disintegrate whoever is holding it. And thank goodness, you know, itself. Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. that, you know, that could have been bad and some other hobo could come by and, you know, blow himself up and... The whole thing just keeps going. Well, it's a good thing that that hobo wasn't uh, integral to history because he, he could have <laughs> you know, changed I thought about something that? else. Yeah. <laughs> I thought about that. Like, what if somebody saw him disappear and then started this crazy, you know, aliens are coming idea, which is kind of true. I mean, because, you know, they're time travelers. And actually, you know, Spock's an alien. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Thankfully, that didn't happen. We only have to worry about killing one person we love. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, it could have been that that same hobo was destined to have like a heart attack the very next day. <laughs> so maybe, you know, the, the, the course of history had much less alteration. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say that uh, watching this, you know, a second and a third time pre- prepping for this show, and it's probably the episode of Star Trek that I've seen more than any other episode. I, I think uh, that's probably true. Um you know, I think the first time you see this, you're kind of paying attention to the sci-fi element, the the mystery, what what's going on and how do they solve the problem. And I found myself later on just paying attention to the love story and the Kirk and Keeler moments and um, and, and certainly to the uh, uh, McCoy moments. You know, the, the character work in this is just great. And we've mentioned a few times on our show how... Um, sure, Shatner sometimes gets criticized for overacting or whatever. I don't see that here at all. I, I think it's beautifully played. No, um, you're right. It's, it's it's really wonderful. There there are a couple of acting things that are interesting here. Um, mm-hmm. Not quite to the extent that Shatner has, but I think Joan Collins suffers a lot from her time on Dynasty. I mean, we think about her and we think, you know, <laughs> evil, overacting, terrible Right. And uh, and then, of course, we think about the perfume she came out with, because who doesn't want a perfume made by somebody who's, you know, evil and an overactor and terrible? Um, <laughs> she's great in this episode. She it's actually, is. it's neat to see her. I mean, she's a little Mary Poppins, you know, but she's supposed to be. So it's yeah. OK. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just really neat to see her, you know, not be evil. Um, and while this is a Kirk and Keeler production, uh, the mm-hmm. time between Keeler and McCoy is pretty special, I think. Um, yeah. One of the drags about Star Trek a lot of times, in any given week, any one of the characters who has shown an incredible amount of depth uh, can be turned into a cartoon. It's basically what the writer needs to advance the plot. Um, this certainly happens to Southern Fried McCoy on this side of paradise. <laughs> and uh, it happens for most of this episode as well. I mean, McCoy is just like a half a step away from Yosemite Sam yeah. uh, in this episode, you know, just walking around yelling stuff that you can barely understand. But when he starts to come to... Uh, he's fairly convinced that he's still insane. So his 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 uh, time with uh, Keeler is is really fantastic because he's like, mm-hmm. well, you're imaginary, but here's what I would say if you were real. I mean, there's a real there's a real <laughs> playfulness about it. And what's cool is it's not just a playfulness about the writing. I mean, there's a there's an irascibility about McCoy that's not cartoony. It's it's yeah. it's real. He's 
you know, he's there playing with the fact that eh, I could well be insane, but, you know, let's see what I can do with it. Yeah, he, he is awesome in that scene. Yeah. Um, hey, speaking of uh, previous episodes, I, I know that uh, I, I was probably a little more of a fan of Tomorrow's Yesterday than you were, and certainly than some of our listeners were, but clearly this is such a much more sophisticated approach to time travel. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, this kind of now sets the tone for time travel stories that come after it. Um, sure, something like Back to the Future is a comedy, but the idea of seriously dealing with the repercussions of what happens when history is different is is explored in such a fascinating way here. And, um, it, it, of course, we're, we're giving it away, but that's another one of the reasons that I think this episode holds up. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. Um, now, doing the whole nitpicking thing, one of the drags mm-hmm. about this episode, once again, we have found you know sort of a pangalactic super being that we're, we're just going to fly <laughs> away from at the end of it. I understand Kirk's heartbroken. I get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're just going to leave that. It's been here for forever. It is its own beginning and its own end. It is the Alpha and the Omega as far as it's concerned. Uh, yeah, we're just going to leave that there, though. And it just killed Kirk's girlfriend. So, you know what? If I were Kirk, not only would I get back up in the Enterprise and get out of there, I would probably – I'd probably take a good phaser shot before I left. You see, <laughs> you know? I actually wondered about that because, you know, we had this whole thing – and not to keep bringing it up, but it's a sore spot for me. Um, this side of paradise, everybody, you know, is like, well, what happens if the Klingons find this or what happens if somebody else? Or we said yeah. that with Miri as well. Uh, we're apparently not concerned, though, about anybody else stumbling upon the Guardian of Forever. Yeah. Who, I, who I, is I, not I, concerned with who finds it? He's like, hey, you want to go back in history? Go back in history. Go right. nuts, dude. Seriously, go nuts. And uh, hopefully you won't wreck everything. But if you do, well, you're back in history. So what do you care? I will say one thing that was fun about the Guardian of Forever Listening to him insult Spock is just so amusing. And <laughs> it's not because it's Spock. It would have been amusing had it been McCoy or Kirk or Scotty or whomever right. or whoever, whichever one that is, or whatever. Um, but what's funny, though, is just the Guardian of Forever is so dismissive of the intellect of anybody else who's there. Yeah. So, okay. so Spock is like, oh, it's sort of a portal through time. And the Guardian of Forever is like, yeah, I guess if you want to think about it in that small a <laughs> way, you, yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. I mean, basically, he did just sum it up. Yes, you know, it's a portal to any point in time. But, you know, apparently that's just that's the that's the idiot's guide to what the Guardian of Forever is. Yeah, <laughs> right. It, you know, we're, we're back to something that I really like, um, which is that we don't end with a slap on the back and the freeze frame of the bridge crew laughing. Yeah, uh, we're, we're back to the tragic, ambiguous ending. And Kirk is genuinely shaken. And um, it it is a genuine moment for the show, um, uh, which I absolutely love. And that's that's pretty sophisticated stuff for primetime entertainment in the 1960s. Yeah, that's pretty sophisticated stuff for American television, honestly, up until the past, I would say, maybe even the past decade or so. I mean, you can pretty much bank on a happy ending. Unless it was a long, um, a long-standing character who was, you know, leaving the show, then it became an event. You know, tonight on this, something tragic happens to this person. We say goodbye to Jimmy Schmitz on whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know, series he happens to be on this this year. Yeah, um, yeah. It, so you're right to see that kind of thing happen in nineteen uh, nineteen sixty eight is a uh, is a bit surprising. Mm. Um, yeah. There's one thing that's kind of weird. 
uh, the Vulcan nerve pinch, not nearly as effective in the 1930s as it is yeah. <laughs> right. in modern day for Star Trek. Because, I mean, you can see Spock put somebody down for a good long time in an episode of Star Trek. Not in this episode, though. Like, he, he, uh, he does the nerve pinch on the cop, and then he turns around and runs away, and almost immediately there's, you know, the whistle blowing. And then when they're hunting him down, when they're hunting McCoy down on this planet, they do the nerve pinch, and it keeps him out for maybe 25 seconds. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, so that might be one of the nasty side effects of the uh, Guardian of Forever. It seems to have been established that this is a great episode of Star Trek, but is it an episode from which we can learn as well? Interesting episode, this one, John. Um, I'll go ahead and start off by saying we do not have a UC Timmy. I mean, nope. unless unless you want to go with the one that we had with uh, Tomorrow is Yesterday, if you end up back in time, try not to wreck the rest of history. <laughs> yeah. And yet there's, I mean, there, I mean there, there are interesting things to pull out of here, ethical and moral dilemmas. I don't think so much for the viewer, but, but really interesting to watch them for, uh, for, for the cast that we know and love. Yeah, but it, not so much for the viewer, uh, but it is that kind of interesting intellectual exercise. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, This is that great ethical quandary, and maybe you've heard this presented before, um, and I, I've heard it phrased a lot of different ways, but the, the idea is this, you know, a train is hurtling down the tracks at 80 miles an hour, and you're standing there controlling the switch to make the train go down one track or another. And if you throw the switch one way, then 50 people will die. If you th- if you throw the switch the other way, then only one person dies. So what do you do? Well, do what, I, what is the, the normal answer for that? Do I know any of those people? Well, we don't know yet. And are any of those people Hitler? We don't know that because <laughs> that tends to be <laughs> that tends to be one of the deal breakers right there. You know, usually yeah. You're like yeah, I'll kill a thousand people at one Hitler. But you know, interesting treatment of that actually. I think it was um, Stephen Fry wrote a novel. I want to say it was called Making History where mm-hmm. he kind of did the same sort of thing that you do in this episode, uh, where he had somebody go back in time and kill Hitler, and it turns out the world was a worse place when it was done. Not for the people that Hitler didn't kill, obviously, right. but for, you know. So that's always an, it's sort of an interesting conundrum. The answer to your question, I think you throw the switch, and the one person dies, not the 50, is what most people would say. Well, right, and then you complicate it by saying, well, that one person is your mother. Well, then I say my mom. Yeah. Sorry. You know. So, uh, yeah. And hopefully and, and, hopefully Hitler's on yeah. the train, too. And, you know, it's yeah. a win-win for everybody. My mom gets to live and, and no more Hitler. Right. But, you know, I, I thought about what, uh, <laughs> what you just said, you know, in, in terms of if you were to change history, how do you know for sure that the end result would actually be better? I mean – yeah, for for our heroes here, there is no more enterprise. the The future that they have is gone, um, and the rise of Hitler of Germany had won World War II. Uh, that certainly would have been awful. Yes, but we still don't know what came after that. Yeah, no, you you've got you, centuries you more. You, yeah. oh man, again, you want to you want to go ahead and uh, uh, do an ad for Mussolini again as well? <laughs> no, no, See, no, no, not at all. There's a huge difference here between um, tomorrow is yesterday and uh, City on the Edge of Forever, and that is we know that Hitler wins. I mean, all we know, yeah, in tomorrow is yesterday is we no longer have the Enterprise, right? right. We no longer have that particular future. Doesn't mean that we don't have a better future. That's never examined. 
by the Enterprise right. crew. They just know that, well, they've lost their track in time, and so everything is wrong now, and they yeah. need to fix it. They don't know how much better things might have been or how much worse things might have been. They just know that they're winked out, and yeah. they don't really like you know that idea. There's a very different thing happening on City on the Edge of Forever. I mean, we, we know what happened in World War II, and that was with the Allies prevailing. So the assumption right. is if the Allies don't prevail – then what happens in World War II is worse. Now, you want to extrapolate 500 years from now, maybe we end up with something different? Yeah, okay, but the thing is we're 450 years away from that now. Maybe we end up with something just as good, if not better, you know, the way we are today. But I don't yeah. think, I don't think, I think any ambiguity is sort of removed from this, you know, by virtue of the fact that they say, well, the Nazis developed the atom bomb and take over the planet. Right. <laughs> right. right? So, I mean, I think you can sort of, Outside of the general thought exercise, I think we can take ourselves out of that because there are very few people, relatively few people, I hope very few people watching it thinking, no, but seriously, what would have happened if, yeah, <laughs> not <laughs> right. go with me on this, you know, because right. I don't, I think most people are going to go, no, I'm not going to go with you on that. It's, it's just more interesting to watch um, Kirk have to wrestle with the quandary. Yeah, no, it, it is clearly a bad proposition. I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm presenting the, uh, because I had that that thought at some point watching it. Like, yeah. well, okay, we're we're assuming that that they what they are doing is good because this is their history, but it, it's also self serving. But that's okay here. I, well, you know, I, I get that. Yeah, well, it's it's self serving, but it's also serving. I mean, it's serving more than the self. I yeah, mean, again, yeah. We, we know how badly or how poorly things went um, yeah. when Germany lost right. <laughs> or, or when the Axis lost. So if we assume that the Axis won, I don't think, I don't think they started handing out puppies. Yeah. Hey, speaking of war, um, there, there's a great exchange that Kirk has with Spock when Spock reveals uh, what the, the, the Edith Keeler story. He says that you know, she was a pacifist and she delayed uh, uh, the U.S.'s entry into World War II. Kirk says she was right. Peace was the way. Spock says she was right, but at the wrong time. Um, and and I, I really liked that exchange because a, as we've seen with Star Trek and as we will continue to see with Star Trek, there is an emphasis on peace and there is an emphasis on peaceful resolution of differences Um but it's interesting to me that that we are saying specifically here, no, 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 we had to have war. Um, so it is kind of a, a conditional thing, uh, the the way we are judging war or peace. Um, this is something. Sort of, this is something. Mm -hmm. Forgive me. This is something you get from Spock quite a bit too. I mean, go back mm -hmm. just a couple of episodes or a few episodes to The Devil in the Dark. He yeah. wanted to, you know, save the Horda. Until it was going to hurt Kirk. I mean, he's, you know, he's willing yeah. to do and, and or go back to where no man has gone before. He's willing to do um, the dirty work. He's 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 willing to, you know, take up arms. Um, he'd right. rather not. But uh, but he always knows that that's something they might have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I really like about this episode and I like having this conversation with people, particularly uh, people who are kind of newbies to Star Trek. Um, it, you remember we got that call from a listener, I believe it was uh, John Willis who suggested the idea of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as uh, ethos, pathos, and logos, um, although not exactly in that order. Um, I, I always think about this episode as being the perfect 
representation of that. And it's kind of a, an interesting thing to be able to talk about with somebody, particularly if they're new to Star Trek, to kind of get a handle on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy being the, the triumvirate here. Um, ethos being ethics, being the sense of what is right and wrong, uh, pathos being compassion, and logos being logic. And um, here Kirk is firmly, as he is often, he is firmly in the position of ethos, having to make the decision about what is right and what is wrong. Um, McCoy is clearly the compassionate one, uh, particularly in his scene with Edith that, that you like so much. And then in his immediate reaction to try to run out into traffic and save her from getting hit. And then Spock as logic, um, simply sitting on the sideline, telling Kirk what he has to do without, without a shred of compassion. Yeah. In a very cold way, you know? Yeah. I think I'm falling in love with Edith Keeler says Kirk. Edith Uh, Keeler must die. It just hurts. It just hurts, man. (laughs) You know? Um, but I, I, this is that that pattern that we we've seen before, but I, I think this really just nails it, and then we'll see it again throughout the rest of Star Trek with with these characters. Yeah, agreed, agreed. It's a, it's um it's an interesting illustration. The thing is, honestly, one of the difficulties of this episode is it's so compelling that you I don't want to say that you miss that because it's kind of good. I mean, if you if you're not if you're not just looking at it going, oh, there's logical Spock again, you know, which yeah, is yeah. you know part of the backslapping that happens at the end of most episodes. Um, this episode is so compelling that it's easy to lose sight of what the you know any of those kinds of messages are. Like it's yeah. not, it's when you go back to analyze it that you automatically see, oh yeah, well there's you know ethos, pathos, and logos again. It doesn't it doesn't hit you over the head though. I mean, what hits you over the head is what an amazing story this is. Or how well yeah. how well told it is. Yeah, um, I really like uh, Edith's speech. Uh, although you, you know, you watch it and you kind of go, "Well, the, the, this is this is the writer." <laughs> you know, um, she plays it very well. But but the the moment where you have that kind of dreamy lighting on Joan Collins and and she's looking beautiful, and then she's talking about man reaching the stars. Um, it. it it feels a bit forced, but she's good. But the message here is one that I, I think is very Star Trek, which is that we work through our struggles today with an eye to the future. Uh, oh, no. Okay. Well, no, oh, this is, well, it's fine. I mean, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is the weakest part of the episode for me. Now, I like it. I like mm-hmm. you know, what she's saying. I like how she's saying it, although I've got a couple of issues. One is it does feel a little bit forced. Um, it sort of comes from out of nowhere. At the same time, it's kind of refreshing. I mean, when she gets up to make the speech at the at the place, you kind of assume that she's going to be a Bible thumper. In fact, right. I think she's even got a small book with her. Yeah. Um, I would have to go back and check that to be sure, but I'm pretty sure she does, and I think that was meant to you know, sort of throw us off. Instead of, though, talking about any sort of uh, personal Lord or Savior or you know, um, religious uh, anything, she starts talking about a future where man harnesses the power of the atom and shoots himself through the stars. And... Um, those advances will bring health and prosperity where I have my issue is the same place. I had my issue a couple of, uh, a few episodes ago now on uh, this side of paradise. Um, what she says, uh, these advances are going to bring health and prosperity, hope even. And those yeah. are days worth living for. Um, the only problem that I have with it. And again, 
you know, the rest of this episode is just so incredibly sterling to me. Um, the only problem I have with it is the implication is that we'll still need hope. That we're still going to be in a time of not getting over or feeling that, you know, we won't get over. And I guess what it boils down to is I would rather hear... I would rather hear the song Big Rock Candy Mountain. <laughs> but what we hear instead is that we may eventually be able to put a down payment on a small plot of land in, you know, Big Rock Candy Mountain Estates. It's a different uh-huh. kind of thing, right? We don't we're not getting the we're not getting and you know, maybe this is the difference between the religion and the philosophy. We're not getting when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be. We're getting, you know, when we get to the future, things are gonna be so much better and, you know, and people are going to have hope. And I guess yeah. I'm looking for a future where we don't have hope because we don't need it anymore. You know what I mean? And not we don't have hope because, oh, things have gotten so dystopian and terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, hoping now that we're aiming for a future where we don't have to hope for better. We just, you know, we, we've got the best. And maybe that's, a, you know, maybe that's pie in the sky. But uh, Well, I mean, I think that's a pretty intense uh, nitpick. Uh, that that you've got, I, I, I get what you're saying. I really do. I mean, I, I also wait. I'm sorry. Con- define define intense nitpick. What do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, because we, we're already saying that that this is such a fine episode, and and everything within it holds together so beautifully. <laughs> but I, you know, you're also you're dealing with a, a woman who's in a room full of people with absolutely no hope. They they have. Yeah. I mean, they're they're sitting there in a soup kitchen just hoping for the charity of a few good individuals who will make their lives a little bit more bearable. Yeah. And, and in this really interesting way, um, like you said, uh, cause I, I, I kind of thought about it, but I didn't, I, I didn't think to write it down in the way that you did the, this idea that she's not, she's not preaching about something intangible. You know, she's not preaching about, the, the sort of mystical heaven that you'll get to if if only you're good. She's she's trying to inspire them with the idea of a physical reality that that we can get to, um, and, and I think that part of it is very interesting. And um, I, I I don't know it, 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 that doesn't bother me in the way that that it did you. Well, uh-huh. and don't misunderstand me. I mean, again, mm-hmm. this is such a stellar episode. It didn't even bother me the way that it mm-hmm. bothers me in, you know, other episodes. Yeah. It's, you know, if we're if if our charge is to look at it with a critical eye, and I don't mean, sure, you know, sure. to criticize, but if our right. charge is to look at it with a critical eye, um that's one thing that occurred to me. And it's yeah. it it's a small thing in in this episode. It's not even I mean, this is not well, should we should we should we pause and let the computer say something and then we'll come back and and say whether it does what it does? I think that's a brilliant idea. I would normally say something witty or insightful here, but thing one and thing two seem a bit impatient to sum up the city on the edge of forever. I'm against naming her, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I love her. I like, I'm I so like glad Yuri. she's here, but, you know, I'm just, I'm, you know. Um, so w- w- when last we spoke about 30 seconds ago, the question was, I mean, does, does that little thing uh, do anything to taint this episode? And the answer, as far as I'm concerned, is no. I think we started off at the beginning here 
answering the questions, not about the messages, morals, and meanings, but whether or not this episode stands up. For the record, let's go ahead and put the questions to each other and answer them. John, does this episode hold up? Uh, how dare you ask me that question, Ken? Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, a hundred times yes. Um, th- this is one of those that I, I think more than any other episode, I would say to somebody who is new to Star Trek, this is the one to watch because it, it is first and foremost a love story. And um, it's it's acted well. It's written well. Um, the the stakes are high. Um I like everything about it, and I'm not too big to admit here that I do still get choked up at this episode. There are moments that I think that are are really incredible. Um, It holds up so incredibly well, and it rightfully so uh, always achieves that position of being kind of the fan favorite, the number one episode of Star Trek, Um, and rightfully so. Yeah. I, the only thing I would nitpick with you is you'd have to know who it is that you're showing it to. I would say this is definitely one of the two episodes. I mean, if you're looking – if you've got somebody who says, I don't like science fiction, mm-hmm. and you want to turn them on to the fact that there's more to science fiction than science fiction, this is one of two episodes, I would think, um, depending on who your person is. The other might be Balance of Terror. Yeah. But, I mean, that's – and I'm not nitpicking. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just – you know, when you when you ask – you didn't ask that question, but when you brought that question yeah. up, I'm sort of like, wow, what would be the first episode that I would show people? You know? Yeah. And, uh, no, I, I get your logic there. Yeah. 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 One of the two. One of the two. Um, messages, morals, meanings. I mean, I think, I, I think we've actually answered all of these questions throughout this episode. There is no you see Timmy here. No, no. It, it's, it, it's the ethical dilemma. That, that's what this episode is about, um, other than being about the love story. Um, I, I think that's the really interesting thing to explore here. Yeah. I, and, well, I, I might even go a tiny bit further and say that there's not much of an ethical dilemma here. It's just interesting to watch them deal with the ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know once you say that Germany wins World War II, that Spock's been right the whole time. Edith Keeler must die. Yeah. Now, you could actually, if you wanted to, we joked about whether or not that hobo who, you know, sort of phased himself out of existence with a phaser <laughs> one. What a noob. Right. <laughs> and we sort of joked about whether or not he could, you know, whether or not his, you know, having been destroyed might have actually upset the balance of, you know, everything in the universe, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, there is something kind of neat, and sadly it doesn't end up working out for her, but this woman runs a soup kitchen. Uh, in the alternate history that they end up averting, six years later she meets with the President of the United States. Sadly, that does not end up working out well for everybody in uh, in the alternate history. But, I mean, there is kind of a neat there, – there's a neat little like hidden message of, you know, do your thing. Do your thing. Do your thing well. Uh, do good, and yeah. um, and it might work out for you. Sadly, it, it won't always. Right, right. <laughs> because, <laughs> because your peacenicking 30 years ahead of time uh, would end up with the Nazis winning the planet. But – and there is still something kind of neat about this woman's just there, you know, uh, like 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 doing good, and 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 just talking to people, and ends up um, potentially changing the world for the better. Sadly, yeah. maybe you should also just stay inside and not talk to anybody because <laughs> going out and doing good and talking to people about what you believe may also lead to ruin and destruction. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that Edith Keeler is an admirable character, and, yes. and her her qualities are meant to inspire. So, uh, but as 
Spock says it's the right idea at the wrong time. Yeah. So um, that, yeah. that that's the only unfortunate part about her. Yeah. So, I mean, with there being no one message, I don't think we have to ask the question of does the message hold up because, you know. Because it, that doesn't matter because the episode holds up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is go. just an absolutely fantastic episode. Um, it's just, uh, yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. this is a joy to watch and a joy to watch again and a joy to talk about with you, John Champion. Why, thank you. Hey, you want to do it again next week? Mm, all right. You sure? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, hey, I, I know that uh, I know that this might be hard for you to believe, but we're uh, we're coming up here on the end of season one. That is crazy. I know. So next week it's the final episode for season one. It is Operation Annihilate. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Next week, an episode that cannot possibly be as good as the city on the edge of forever. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.